Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 18. The Apostle Paul speaking, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then next week we're going to go into a, a, a long passage which covers some of the most intense theological concepts in Christendom. And um, it's divided the body of Christ between Arminian and Calvin and uh, Arminius and Calvin and Biblicists and all points in between. And I'm just, I'm just taking time to read it as I would be a new believer being touched by the Apostle Paul. And I, I see before we get into those deep theological truths, Paul shares with us the confusion of the world around us and how we just struggle as Christians and just the simple things we're looking for some sort of comfort for. And he addresses that before he goes into this deep, deep theological dissertation and then following verses that we'll study next week. But I want to take time to look at this and find comfort in these words for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, please, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you yourself make intercessions for us with groanings that we cannot even utter. And you search our hearts and you know what, what the mind of, of the Father is and the will of God is because you are God. And Lord, all creation groans, eagerly awaiting the redemption of man. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you that you've given us insight into all the struggles, and you've given us comfort in the midst of the trials. We praise you this day. Lord, through your word, I pray that you would encourage all who are present and those who would hear the rebroadcasting of this, that they too would be comforted. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands, thanking you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us into all truth. Prepare our hearts now to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. So as we've been going through uh, the book of Romans and taking a look at what the Apostle Paul's sharing, and we, we saw that we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We saw that in verse 17, and we took a look at that, that you know, not, not just adopted into the family of God that, um, you know, we're, we're going to be considered one of the family members, but all the birth kids, those that, that, that um, are brought into the family through, through the bloodline get a better portion of the inheritance, and the adopted one, well, they kind of get what's left over. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God, nor is it the way it works in my family with uh, our four kids that were homegrown and our one child that was grafted. Uh, they're, they're all my kids. I always say about Natasha, our adopted daughter, that 
She was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery. And so as we, we look at these things, the, the, the Lord says, you're not only heirs of Christ, you're joint heirs. Everything he gets, you get. Everything he has, you have. Uh, we're, we're, we're in this position that we have equal footing, which is fascinating. The riches of Christ are our beckoning call and everything that the Lord possesses, he gives to us. And that is a great gift and a comfort. And a lot of us don't understand our, our position and our standing in Christ. He's going to go through this understanding in some capacity where some of the words in the later verses are going to be a little bit difficult to comprehend. But by God's grace, we're going we're gonna to see exactly what he wants us to understand. We'll, we'll come to one of the most famous verses in the scripture next week, Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We're going to see that, and then we're going to go into this, this idea of predestined and foreknowledge and all of those things that just cause you to have stretch marks on your brain and give you an excedrin headache and trying to comprehend a theology that has divided mankind and created wars and all kinds of things, which is odd. I don't think Paul ever intended that, nor did the Holy Spirit. But today, we stop for a moment before we step into those, those deeper truths. We, we stop for a moment and take a look at what God says to us as believers. He knows that we go through heartache. He knows we go through struggle. We live in a fallen world. We see in Genesis that, that Adam and Eve uh, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowing both good and evil, and thus sin entered the world, and sin is the law of entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics that everything reduces to its least common denominator. It's all breaking down. But what happens is the Lord stepped in to redeem man, and as he gives us new life in Christ and we become new creatures, the old passes, the new comes, we now become instruments of life and instruments of redemption. It's like a man working on an old, old car that's beat up. He remembers it from his childhood. He steps in, he says, I knew what that looked like new and I'm going to restore it. I'm going to renew it. I'm going to, to pour uh, my effort into this to redeem this and renew it. And you can see what happens in the car market as people pour their lives into a, a physical object and, and it's a work of beauty. Well, what we do with physical objects, God does with human beings. God does with the world itself and all creation. We see what sin does and how it manifests itself across the world. You remove God from the equation and you look at governments that have removed God and billions of people have died in communism and fascism and socialism. And we see this. And people say, well, no, Christianity is the source of all the death in the world. Is that really true? Uh, where do you get your history? Well, what about the Salem witch trials? I ask you, how many people died in the Salem witch trials? Liberally speaking, let's say less than 25. And who stopped it? Pastors. The Inquisition. Less than 100,000. The Crusades, in response to their nation being invaded, we can still say to the Crusades, awful as it is, not many. How many have died at the hands of atheism, i.e. communism, fascism, the absence of God? and the Billions. That's with a B. Billions. It's destructive. And when we remove God from the equation, we tend to go to authoritarian forms of government. We watch as mankind dissolves and implodes. We try to, to create laws to somehow govern ourselves in the absence of absolutes and moralities, and so man becomes the absolute. And we know him to be anything but good. And those in power have absolute power and begin to assert that on others and see people as, as subjects in their kingdom. 
Never in the history of the world has a nation been conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal, save but for the United States. This idea that we have liberty and license and freedom and a delicate balance, never before understood on the face of the earth, and we're watching as we're apathetically allowing that to slip through our fingers. We struggle and we have heartache. Our medical world is in disrepair. We're watching as the prices increase and the quality decreases. We're watching as the amount of time we work, the less we receive and the more that is taken. We realize that we're not going to give to our children and our grandchildren that which we receive from our parents and our grandparents. There's a decline, a destruction occurring in the world. And through this, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But it says, when righteous, when, 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 uh, A nation embraces the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We reject the Lord, and sin is a reproach. It destroys a nation. But righteousness exalts a nation. When we obey the Lord and we step into his commandments and his precepts, we watch as a nation is preserved and peoples flourish. But here... We see in this passage of Scripture the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome that was oppressed by a fascist form of government that had its its boot on the neck of every believer throughout the Roman Empire. To survive and to worship, they had to hide in the catacombs of Rome. They had to, to secretly meet. They had to do whatever was possible so as not to find their heads removed from their bodies. And Paul saw the suffering as he himself endured it from city to city. As Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Acts and watching as the Apostle Paul is beaten in every city that he goes to. As a matter of fact, as he's penning this letter to the church in Rome, he himself is in prison, awaiting yet another beating. And he says to the brothers and sisters in Rome, many who live in in Caesar's household, Many who are subject to the atrocities of Caesar, many who have witnessed the, 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 the despotic rule of Caesar, trying to figure out how to navigate their convictions in a world that rejects them. Knowing that the more they open their mouth, the more suffering they're going to obtain because truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nevertheless, not conformity. Do not be conformed to this world. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. We find ourselves conforming to the world, compromising with the world, as opposed to affecting it and transforming it. And to transform it and to have an effect upon the world, we must confront the world. But in fear, and God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to struggle. And and to avoid that, we take the least common path to resistance. We find ourselves conforming to the world and compromising and not confronting evil, not confronting a lie with the truth. Instead, we acclimate ourselves and accommodate. And in accommodation, we tend to, to be upset with those who would do otherwise. Why do you have to rock the boat? Why do you have to be so bold? Why do you have to say such things? You're only bringing condemnation on the rest of us. And yet Paul says, suffering is part of the walk. Paul says in Romans 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, which are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yeah, there's suffering, but it's nothing compared to what awaits us. 
Our job is to let others know what awaits them if they would but receive Christ and submit their life to the living God who holds the heaven in the span of his hand. I I sat through a a speech over at Oaks Christian uh, Middle School as they had the speech and debate of some of the homeschool kids around the country. It's fascinating. And and you want to see something that gives you hope for the future, watching them debate and with legal terms and going through all different types of, of rhetoric and debate. It was fascinating. One young girl spoke of this concept where she said, universe universe. Uni meaning one, verse meaning sentence. One sentence. One sentence that if you can embrace, the rest of the Bible will be no problem to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I was fascinated by her words, deeply touched. But to state that God created, that requires a boldness. That requires a spine. Because then you're going to confront evil. You're going to confront a lie with the truth. The truth, there are absolutes. There is a God who governs. We are accountable to him. Now, that's a problem. In a world that rejects God, we're called to stand. And to stand will result in suffering. It will result in suffering. This week, it's a hard week. I am tired. Physically, emotionally, not so much spiritually. I'm tired, though. My father-in-law got to go home yesterday, praise the Lord. My wife is leaving again to go be with him, which is so selfish on my father-in-law's behalf. (laughs) But he suffered a heart attack, a triple bypass. They opened his chest up. They say that when you open up the human chest uh, for surgery, Great Depression typically follows, and they don't know what causes that, but it occurs in most heart patients. And he goes through that. He's been through that. Michelle's been praying that the depression would lift or that he wouldn't even have to endure that. And as I'm, I'm witnessing her care for, for her father, I went uh, and, and drove to San Diego. Uh, first, I went to Newport Beach to speak, and then I was going to go to the uh, Council on National Policy in San Diego. And M- Michelle and I had missed each other because when I come back from South Carolina and landed, she had taken off for Phoenix. We missed each other there. We hadn't seen each other in a while. I was on my way down to San Diego. And when I went there... I wanted to take my friend Ryan Hatcher to go visit my father. So we went to the rest home where my father was. And there he was in a wheelchair, and, and this, this cute young lady was, was feeding him things that he, he didn't have to chew. His teeth are, are given out on him at 87, almost 88 years of age. And he's not all there. He's in a wheelchair. He knows how to eat, which at this stage is pretty remarkable. I came to find out as they had shared with me, and, and they just two just adorable nurses were there. And um, and they began to share with me, you know, your father is is the the longest resident here. He's outlived everyone that came in with him. I said, Well, that's because he has the constitution of a government mule. <laughs> he didn't give up. And there he is, and even in the midst of, of his suffering, and his body is, is gaunt and frail, his teeth are decrepit, his eyes, his face affected by skin issues, he's smiling. And you think, well, somebody at that stage doesn't really have a quality of life. Don't be so sure about your judgment. As this young lady was feeding him, I pulled out my phone and I said, I want you to know who you're feeding. I took her through videos of my father. Over 50 years of marriage, faithful to one woman. 
a highly decorated Navy captain. I showed him my father by my mother's bedside when my mother was passing and his comfort that he brought to my mom, his wife, even as his mind was gone. I turned to the other young lady who was listening in and she was drawn by the conversation. And I said, what do you do other than this? Are, are you new in the area? And she said, we moved here from Wisconsin. I said, we, who, who would that be? My husband and I. What does your husband do? He's enlisted in the Navy. Is he overseas? Well, he just got back. I said, would you tell him thank you for his service? And I said, this man right here in the wheelchair understands the struggle you're going through because his wife, like you, went through 30 years of that. Every two years, moving to a new port, having to rearrange and change everything. She began to get choked up. All of a sudden, it wasn't a man in a wheelchair who was a burden. It was a human being that had the ability through a life well lived to minister to somebody that they couldn't speak to, but their life did. My dad was suffering, but not in a way that would hinder what God wanted to do in and through him to reveal a glory of faithfulness and substance and character. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Even there in a wheelchair, my father had far more substance than most people in their entire life. To be able to reflect on a life well lived, to touch two hearts that were in the midst of a busy schedule, whose lives would be forever changed. Paul writes, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. I look at my dad, and I think, Lord, what do you have for him? Why is he holding on? And then God always baffles me with moments like that. That he can use a man who can no longer speak to touch a world that no longer hears. How do you do that, God? For the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who was subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We, we think the world is dying. It's just about to be born. These aren't death pangs. These are birth pangs. Waiting for men to realize who they are in God. That the creation they've been given to, to, to be stewards of, instead of hoarding it and destroying it, they would embrace it and understand it and realize that every ology is a reflection of the Creator. University, unified diversity, diverse studies, all unified to glorify one God. Singular plurality, all found in the name Elohim. Let us, Elohim, let us make man in our image. An image of community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Universe, singular sentence, in the beginning God created. This is what it's about. Anything else is futile and empty and void of any meaning or purpose. And you're tired and you hurt. And I watch, at 51, I was sitting around a room. I'm the oldest in the room at my home. And they're playing music that is far too loud for me to hear. And they're dancing and moving their body in ways I can no longer do. 
And in the midst of the music, my wife wants to talk to me. I literally have to read her lips because I can't hear her. And I'm looking at her lips. She says, why aren't you looking at me? Because I can't hear you. I can only hear you when you're moving your mouth. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. It's like the man who went to the doctor. and He says, I think my wife has an awful hearing problem. He says, there's a test. He said, what is that? She won't go to the doctor. He says, you can do it at home. He says, okay. He says, when you see her in the kitchen cooking, stand 15 feet behind her and ask her what's for dinner. And if she doesn't respond, move 10 feet in and ask her again. And if she doesn't respond, move five feet in. And then we can calculate her hearing loss. So he goes in and he sees her. She's cooking dinner. He says, honey, what's for dinner? No response. Moves 10 feet in. Honey, what's for dinner? No response. Five feet. Honey, what's for dinner? Finally comes right up to her and says, honey, what's for dinner? She said, for the fourth time, it's chicken. We're subject to decline and entropy. Yes, our outward man is failing. Yes, our body is beginning to fail. Our body is beginning to fail. The Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians 15, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. If Christ really isn't the Son of God and the Redeemer of man, and we live in such a way as though he were, and our life takes on this, this commitment to confront evil and to push back destruction and to restore mankind and to live with the concept that we are instruments of transformation to bring life to a dying world. We're going to be confronted with evil and we're going to have conflict. And that conflict will result in suffering, both physical, emotional, and spiritual. It's been a week of that. And if there be no resurrection, the Apostle Paul says, because of the life I live, I would be of all men most pitied. But I look at the body of Christ today and I think to myself, we don't confront evil. We take the the, the path of least resistance. We accommodate evil. We call it worship. I, I, I watch young people at concerts all directed towards worship and yet Culturally, there's no transformative power that they're doing anything to affect the culture. But it's, in, it's, it's self-indulgent. And somehow this manifests itself in, in an idea that we're worshiping. When in reality, this should be infused to affect this. What is the difference between going to a Christian concert and a secular concert if there is no transformative work in the human heart to push back darkness and confront evil? Not accommodate it, but confront it. And confront it in love, but confront it nevertheless. And we will be suffering. And I look at the Christian world and I look at the secular world and I think there's no difference. If they were to look at me and think, you know, is my life to be most pitied because I embrace Christ? The Apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection, I'd be of all men most pitied. God is calling us to a deeper commitment. And with that commitment, as Paul declares, there will be suffering in the present time. Now, there will be suffering. Our bodies deteriorate. These are tents. They break down. They're temporary dwelling places. I went to go speak at the feet. See, it's breaking down. I went to go speak at the Family Action Pack down in Newport Beach, in a lovely place, the Pacific Club. 
You walk in and it just smells of money. And I walked in there and, and I'm, I, you go in to use the restroom and they've got the towels and, you know, not the paper towels, but like real towels folded. And I'm thinking, do I throw this away? No, you put it in and we'll wash it later. We'll get you and fold it again. I'm like, wow, you have a lot of money. And the soaps were all lovely and everything was brass and marble and the, the bathroom stalls closed. So you had your own little room in there. I just thought this is lovely. I don't even have this at home. <laughs> and, and as I come out and I see Ryan and I walk out, the, a fella comes and he looks so old and his hair's gray and he's, he walks up and, and I, he looks at me like I'm supposed to know him. And he starts talking to me and, and you know, it's a coping mechanism for me. How you doing? Oh, good to see you again. Nice, nice to see you again. Please tell me your name. <laughs> Nothing is registering. And as he's talking, he says, you know, it's me, Dave Duringer." Well, the name immediately is like, bing. But the person, no. You're my classmate from high school. You're way too old to be my classmate. You were in my class. And I looked at Ryan and I said, do I look like him? <laughs> Bless his heart. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, I may look like him, but I hit harder. <laughs> and you see that and you think, when did that happen? I was laying with my wife uh, in bed and we were just talking to each other and she's, she's touching my hair and she says, you're completely gray. How would you feel, woman, if I said that to you? <laughs> you wake up and, and, and you hurt in more places than you feel good in places. And you just wonder. I watched Pastor Marty as, as he, he came to the wedding last night. Here he is in his late 80s. He comes to the wedding and, and he shows up and he's just coming as it's starting. And he goes to get his seat and sits down. But as he passes me by, he says, I had to park way over there. And I thought, I parked right there and I'm exhausted. And he sits down and he goes into the reception and we sit down. I said, Marty, why don't I go get my car? I'll pull it up and then I'll take you to yours. He says, I'm so thankful that you did that. I wasn't sure if anyone would do that for me. I was prepared to make the hike, but okay. And I, you know, I, and it's... I, I let him out, and I see him getting out, and I'm thinking, I'm at 51, almost 52. He's getting out in his late 80s. He's just jumping out of the car, getting over to, getting into his car, driving. And, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, please, give me that when I get to that stage. Because if it's exponential and it increases, I just don't, you people are wearing me out. But we groan, don't we? And we ache. You crack. You sound like Rice Krispies in the morning when you get up. I think of the older folks that go down there, pull up their socks, and they realize they're not wearing socks. <laughs> Sorry. That was funny in a sad sort of way. All suffering in this life, however, is not just physical, even though that's a major emphasis with us when author writes. He says we also suffer mentally and emotionally in life. It's hard to see your dad like that. 
You hear Michelle lament over the phone when I called her to tell her her dad had had a heart attack. That's hard. You tire. You tire of the news every day. You tire of the struggles and the heartache. You tire of another person having cancer. I'm sick of it. I hurt for my friends, my brothers and my sisters in the body of Christ. I hate seeing people hurt. I wish I could fix it. But we just comfort one another in the process. We encourage each other to keep our eyes on the Lord, the author and finisher of our faith, to declare that these sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Be patient. I know it's hard, but don't give up. God has a purpose in the midst of the suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I want to share with you some scriptures that I pray minister to you through the course of this study. Romans eight seventeen, which we've read earlier when he said, and if children then heirs and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that he may also be glorified together. Philippians one twenty nine says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Isn't this lovely? It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Yes? Yes, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. I'd like to present you with, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer with him. Lord bless you. <laughs> Hebrews two eighteen. because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You never know the Lord more than when you're going through a trial. <laughs> Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9 Speaking of the Lord says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries, you can imagine him on the cross, with vehement cries and tears to God the Father who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Can suffering cause us to be more obedient to Christ? Well, the scripture declares yes. Yes, it brings a a person down. Humility before honor. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Suffering humbles us to make us more submissive and obedient to God, which is something we all need to do more of. Paul tells us why we must not let our present suffering get us down. This is important. In this passage of scripture, he shares three things to declare to us why we must not let our present suffering get us down. First of all, we recognize that suffering is part of this world. You've been born into a world that's fallen. Sin is a disease that has affected all of creation. Secondly, the reason why we must let, not let our present suffering get us down is because we relish our hope of something better. Oh, I pity the man or the woman who has nothing to look forward to. 
You think death is the portal into something different, and yet to reject God and to think that right to die legislation or this ability to take secanol tablets and 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 silently fall asleep and to miss what I believe to be one of the most holy moments in a man or a woman's existence is the final moments of their life. It's fascinating that God created us of all the five senses of the human body. The last one to decline and go away is the sense of hearing. Your taste goes, your sight goes, your smell goes, your touch goes, but your hearing as you lay in that bed, a captive audience, all that you've ever come into conflict with through the course of your life is now ministering as your mind begins to fade and God takes these thoughts and he orchestrates them to align your spirit to realize I need to submit to the creator and give my heart to Jesus. It's in those moments that a loved one whispering in the ear of, of, a, of a loved one who is in coma and, and, and speaks the truths of Christ, every word is heard, every word. I've witnessed it. I've been by the bedside of hundreds who have stepped into eternity. God's word doesn't return void. And there in the midst, uh, the relish of something better and to hope for something better. And we would have man and woman, mankind desire to, to destroy an elderly person because suffering somehow is there. And I know pain is awful. And I've watched my mother go through pain and suffering. I watched her hold on for hours just to wait for someone to arrive so that she could say to them, I forgive you. And what that meant to the person who remained on this earth as my mother stepped into eternity was priceless. She had to endure suffering in order to do that. But when we're selfish, we don't desire to extend to another that grace. We just want our pain to go away. Thus, we have things like suicide. Suicide is a way to selfishly take control. Now, I know that there are men and women who have committed suicide, and I've watched this even in the body of Christ. Men and women who deeply love the Lord and through a, a series of bad medications do things that, that their family struggled over the consequences of the, of, of the suicide. And I don't believe them to have been in their right mind, quite frankly. I think in guilt and struggle, we all come to a place where you contemplate that. Some of you say, I never have. Well, you're stronger than I am. But like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, you think maybe life would be better without me in it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the enemy lying to your soul. He's a liar. He's the author of lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you dead. You've been created in the image of God. He doesn't want you on the earth anymore. We tend to hear his voice over that of the one who came to give us life and life more abundant, who has every tear we've ever cried in a bottle, every hair on our head numbered. The older, older we get, the easier that is. We must not let our present suffering get us down because third, we receive help for our weaknesses in the midst of the suffering. The Holy Spirit makes intercessions with groanings too deep for words. I have to tell you, there are times where I don't even know what the problem is. All I know is his comfort is present. And all I can do is just tell him, thank you. Some of you have lost your best friend. I've been there with some of you in those moments. I can't imagine losing Michelle. I know this sounds selfish on the onset, but truly it is unselfish. I want us to live within days of each other before God takes us home, but I ask that God takes her first. 
because I know how painful it is to lose your best friend. I don't want her to go through that. And I've been with some of you when you've lost your best friend. But I've also seen God comfort you in those weaknesses. You get your eyes off yourself and on the Lord. The heartache's still there, but the comfort comes. You know him to be faithful. We recognize that suffering is part of this world. I think of the the comedian Bob Hope. He said when he had received a major award, he responded, I don't deserve this, but then again, I have arthritis and I don't deserve that either. (laughs) I think there are a lot of times we go through life where we feel like we don't deserve the suffering we're enduring. Be careful. Suffering is working a greater glory. It's a purpose in God. And it's amazing when you go through suffering and difficulty, if you can keep your eyes on the Lord, you see the value of what you've endured. You come out stronger, more capable of ministering. It humbles you. I love seeing a young minister who's so opinionated and full of themselves and the knowledge they've obtained and to make a declaration on an elder congregant and to come to a a position that they know nothing about. And to see them endure a bit of suffering and go through a bit of heartache, it makes them a wonderful minister. And it's tragic in our culture. We worship youth because some of our greatest ministers are the older ones because they've been there, done that, and they got the t-shirt. One man's experience drives him to curse God while another man's identical experience drives him to bless God. Your response to what happens is more important than what happens. That depends on how you process it. God allows suffering, but it's for our benefit and our blessing. When suffering comes our way, we need to be like Job. After he lost everything, he wrote these words. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and may the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. When we think we don't deserve the suffering, stop for a moment and ask yourself, what do you deserve? Do you really want what you deserve? That's frightening, isn't it? Be honest. That's frightening, isn't it? And to realize that the suffering you're enduring is from God for your benefit. And to complain and to fight it is to lose the perspective of what God intends to accomplish through it. We relish our hope of something better. That's the secret to suffering. You relish the hope of something better. Romans that we read, 8, 24, and 25, for we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's something better waiting for all of us. That's hope. We have a beautiful life ahead of us. I know my father's going to get a brand new body eternal in the heavens, as did my mother. And in some ways, I don't think we have any concept of how beautiful our future is going to be. If we did, we wouldn't struggle so much with the suffering. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. 
He also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit or a guarantee of what is to come. Philippians 3, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Something far better is coming to us. And finally, We receive help in our time of weakness. That's what we see in the midst of our suffering. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which we cannot be uttered. And now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. C.S. Lewis asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? Why not? They're the only ones who can take it. We have a purpose for it. We're the best equipped to endure it and to reveal to a fallen creature the need for a living God. If there's hope in a fallen world, why wouldn't we? It's been counted a privilege for us. I think of those that don't know the Lord and how hard it is for them. It's easier to pray for someone when you've been through what they're enduring. He makes known our deepest pain and our desires. the the Holy Spirit makes intercessions with groanings too deep for words to know the depths of our soul, things that we can't even express. And there he knows how to help us and to bless us and to sustain us and to strengthen us. Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom this whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being. We see the purposes of suffering in those areas. But I want to close with one last thought. Paul wrote in this passage of Romans 8, he says, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within us, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I love that picture when he says that we eagerly are waiting for the adoption. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. We read in Romans 8.15 that we were already adopted in Christ. We're heirs, joint heirs. There's this sense of waiting for the consummation of our adoption and that which will happen in the redemption of our body. And I close with this last illustration and it's fitting that God would give it to me. I remember when we turned to Natasha, she was in our home. We said, we want to adopt you. Now, when I said that, it was settled. 
Paperwork hadn't been done. The prices haven't been paid. The things, But it was settled. In Michelle's heart, in my heart, we want you to be our daughter. We went through all the procedures, and we went through the, the 50 pages apostilled by the Secretary of State and the 100 notarized declarations and the flights and the meetings with the judge and the psychological evaluations, which were a lot of fun. And we had to go through the physicals with all the family. And there we were in Russia, sitting across from her, There was the orphanage director. There was Natasha. And the orphanage director turned to her and said, do you want them to be your parents? This was a telling moment. We've done everything legally to receive you. Do you want us? And she said, yes. She said, yes. She had been my daughter long before she said yes. And then she turned and she said, what do you want my new name to be? I said, you've always been Natasha. We can give you another name in addition. How about Grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. She liked it. A young lady that would come to know the power of grace. And to realize years later, not at 12 or 13 or 17, but sitting down in the midst of some of the greatest trials of her life, that God would bring full circle this understanding of this, in, this, this depth of, of this adoption, not only in an earthly family, but more importantly, in a heavenly family, that she would say, I get it. I get it. God is good. I know life's hard for all of us. Maybe you haven't had the week I have, but you will. And in the midst of it, know that as we've read this passage together as a family, God has said to you, I am sufficient. I have a purpose for the suffering. And you endure it, and the humility will give you perseverance and strength to bless a world that desperately needs the touch of a living God. It's going to be all right. And I can tell you that by experience. God is worth waiting for. And the suffering pales in comparison to the glory that he levels upon his children and embraces us and envelops us with. And if you have any doubt, you just go visit an 87-year-old captain in a rest home in San Diego, and you will see the glory of God in the midst of suffering. Do not lose hope. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your comfort. Lord, I ask, and I think today especially, in the midst of all the heaviness, that you, God, would touch the hearts of those who desperately need in the midst of the heaviness of their pain, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual, that, Lord, in the midst of it, you would let them know you love them and that you're working it together for good. And there's much they don't understand, but in the groanings, Holy Spirit, you make intercessions with groanings too deep for words that it just settles our heart. God, would you do that today? for those that so desperately need your touch. 
And Lord, for those who've yet to go through that crucible, would you allow us never to forget this lesson so that we would have it handy when we desperately need to call upon it? Lord, bless your people. We praise you and we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.